you came to church on a Sunday night to come to a class called Intro to Anglicanism. And many of you came here this morning for worship services, and the fact that you're here tells me that you love our church and that you're curious. And to get all of you folks on a Sunday night when you could be in pajamas, eating pizza, or doing something else, the fact that you're here is really astounding, and I'm grateful. Um, I'm going to work really hard to honor the time commitment that I set. We'll see. I have not timed this talk, so we'll see how we do. If you have children, please be sure when you go to thank those amazing people who are back there. Um, some of them are volunteers who help out on some Sunday mornings. Some of them are TU and ORU students who we roped into this. But uh, for all of you, if you have kids, please thank them profusely. I'm really, really grateful to everyone who was a part of that. Tonight is going to feel uh, perhaps a bit like a college lecture. And so um, I hope that, uh, I mean, I'm recording this, so if you want to come back and listen to it, you certainly can. If you want to take notes, you're sure welcome to. Uh, when you registered for this, many of you submitted questions, and I've done my best to try to address those. Um, some of them we will not get to, um, but this is, a, this is an intro course. It's a first uh, conversation on this whole topic. So I want to welcome you here tonight. Tonight we're going to be exploring some of the added dimensions to our life together as a congregation uh, with the news that we've joined the Anglican Church of North America. And that transition was made official on January 1st. Um, last week or two weeks ago, I was in Nashville with uh, Bishop Todd Hunter, and they officially accepted my ordination. And so I'm not going to talk about this a lot on Sunday mornings, but you are looking at a priest in the Anglican Church. I am technically the rector of Cornerstone. I will probably not repeat that in public again. I will just say pastor. Um, but that transition has happened and has finalized my ordination, and so we're in. And for some of you, this transition is a point of real interest because uh, you're a student of the church, you're passionate about uh, theology and history and doctrine and all of that. Uh, some of you would probably say you really don't care a whole lot about this transition uh, as long as the church that you've come to know and love doesn't change just a whole ton. And there are probably many more of you, like some kind of the middle majority, who are kind of coming in as a curious blank slate. You're like, yeah, I'm kind of good with whatever. I didn't come because we were launched Methodist. I'm not going to leave with because we became Anglican. And my goal tonight is just to give a really broad-level introduction to this new tribe and just to share all the reasons I think that our affiliation with this tribe is going to enhance our mission. It's going to reinforce some of the values that we already have and strengthen the culture and the values of our church moving into the future. So, as I said already, this is an introduction. Uh, some of the questions that y'all submitted, I think, could be answered if you go back to the Vision 2020 sermon that I preached in November. Even if you just wanted to listen to the last 15 or 20 minutes of that, I think that would be uh, helpful. And for those of you, if I don't address your questions tonight, please come and talk to me personally, or please email me. I would love to be able to, to sort through theological questions, doctrinal questions, practical questions, so uh, please come to me. So, ready to jump in? Okay. So, no matter how you came to know Jesus, uh, all of us came to know Jesus in the context of some kind of theological tradition. And so, I'm curious, I'm going to list a handful of different denominations and tribes, and if you had experience in one of those, I want you just to raise your hand and we'll get a pulse on the room. So, in our church now, I know we have people who spent time in congregations that are Methodist. Okay, you can put your hand down, a lot of Methodists. Southern Baptist. Okay, unsurprising, a lot of Southern Baptists. Uh, Lutheran, 
handful. Uh, Presbyterian. Okay. Uh, Church of Christ. Okay. Yep. Uh, Roman Catholic. Anybody that's, that was Eastern Orthodox? Okay, I wondered if there would be any. Uh, Disciples of Christ? Okay, Assembly of God? Some kind of other brand of Pentecostal or Charismatic? Okay. How about Episcopal or Anglican? Okay, good. We got a great mix. Just looking around, we have a, a good mix uh, in the room. Now, some of you would say that you didn't come to Jesus through any kind of theological tradition. It could have been the Jesus People Movement. It could have been a non-denominational church. It could have been a dream or a vision. You came to Jesus through a friend. But even those examples fit somewhere within the kaleidoscope of options of theological and ecclesiastical traditions. I think of myself as a bit of a mutt as a Christian. Uh, I was raised in the Assemblies of God. When I went to college, I led worship at First Presbyterian downtown. I did a Bible study with First Baptist Broken Arrow. I spent time with an Episcopal priest named Terry over in East Tulsa. I had a professor who was Roman Catholic. I played bass at Victory. I attended Life Church. I led music at a couple of non-denominational church plants in South Tulsa. At one of them, I was the only non-family member. <laughs> and, and then at the end of college, I started attending United Methodist Church, and I was later ordained as an elder in that church. And in each of the churches that I attended, and many of the ones where you were nurtured in your faith, there are different admirable qualities. So let's say I loved the, the Presbyterians' intellectual rigor and their awe, of the, their, their awe for the sovereignty of God. I love the Baptist commitment to sharing the gospel. I love the openness to the Holy Spirit in Pentecostal and charismatic traditions. I love the reverence and the tradition of the Roman Catholic Church and Episcopal churches. I love the deep affection for the Bible that I saw in some churches and the, and the, the passion to uh, advance God's heart in all the world in other churches. And you may notice on, on a given Sunday morning, I cross myself like a Catholic. I lift my hands like I'm a charismatic. I preach in an expository way like a Presbyterian or a Baptist. I'm all about the Lutheran solas, and I embrace mystery like an Eastern Orthodox Christian. And one of the things that I've come to appreciate about Anglicanism is its, is its commitment to practicing true Catholic Christianity. Now, when I say Catholic, many of you immediately go on the defensive. When we made the Anglican announcement a handful of months ago, someone came up to me and said, so basically what this means is we're becoming Catholic. And by this, they meant Roman Catholic. And the answer to their question was, no, we are not becoming Roman Catholic. The word Catholic can simply mean uh, universal. It means the Church of Jesus Christ, which is bigger than Roman Catholicism or Anglicanism or any other ism that you could come up with. And this is what we mean when we say in the, the Apostles' Creed, we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Or as we say in the Nicene Creed, we believe in one Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. And being lowercase c Catholic in this sense means trying to capture the best of what Christians all throughout history have believed throughout the world and throughout time. And there's this Latin expression, quad ubique, quad omnibus, quad semper, which I'm sure I don't even need to translate. You all know that. It means that which has been, been believed everywhere by all, by all people at all times. And Anglicanism strives to be truly Catholic, true universal Christianity in this sense. And Anglicanism is a great fit for a broad, a broad swath of people because it is, in its history and in its aspirations, a truly Catholic theological tribe. 
Anglicanism at its best is striving to capture Jesus' imagination for the church. Anglicanism does not want to be sectarian. It does not want to pigeonhole itself into this niche theological corner. Anglicanism strives to embody the faith that Jesus handed on to the apostles, which has been preserved and refined and defended over the last 2,000 years. When our church launched a little over two years ago, I said publicly, Cornerstone is ultimately not up to anything new. In fact, we're up to something that's really old. And that fits an Anglican ethos, a humility in acknowledging that we didn't invent the church, we don't have the luxury of making up our own theology. The church is not ours. It belongs to Jesus Christ. We receive it as a gift just as the apostles and the first Christians received it from Jesus himself. Should it not be the goal of every pastor and every church to embody and practice Christ's own vision for the church? Should it not be our goal to reject novelty for the sake of novelty and to reject progress for the sake of progress and instead lovingly accept the purity of the gospel as it's been preserved and passed down to us through the ages, the gospel that we have received as a gift? And so for that reason, my goal tonight is not to convince all of you to leave and call yourselves proud card-carrying Anglicans, though obviously I think that you would benefit tremendously by studying some of the great Anglican writers and thinkers throughout history. My goal uh, is, is to reinforce for all of you and support your basic Christian identity. Jesus did not say in the Great Commission to go into all the world and make Anglicans or to make Presbyterians, or to make Baptists. He said to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the triune life of God experienced in Christ's church. And that's what we aim to do. So uh, to, to hop into the story of Anglicanism, we're going to go back uh, to the very beginning. And for some of you, you think, wow, you're going really back to the beginning. I hope it's a good primer for all of us. Uh, the Christian movement was birthed in the Middle East. It was birthed in Israel after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And after Jesus ascended, he told the disciples, go back into Jerusalem, and there you're going to be clothed with power from on high. And so in the upper room, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit descended with a sound like a mighty rushing wind. There were little tongues of fire that rested on each of the people, and they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. This was a reverse Babel moment. You remember Genesis 11 and the, the Tower of Babel? where God empowered his people to share the good news about Jesus to people of all languages and ethnicities of the world. And it just so happened that in Jerusalem, during the Feast of Pentecost, there were people from all over the world. And when the Spirit descended and they began to speak in tongues, they were hearing the wonders of God in their own language. Tongues was primarily about evangelism about revealing God's heart to bless all the nations of the world through Jesus, who was the seed of Abraham, fulfilling Genesis chapter 12. In, in obedience to Jesus' instruction in the Great Commission, and in response to persecution that broke out against the church in Jerusalem, the gospel began to spread to Jews and to Gentiles, which just means non-Gentiles alike. And so we talked months ago about how the church spread north uh, to Antioch in Syria, we have Paul's first and second missionary journeys, which are recorded in the book of Acts. Uh, the, the way, which is what Christianity was originally called, it was thought to be a sect within Judaism, started out as this small minority movement. It grew rapidly and explosively. 
The historical resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the enabling power of the Holy Spirit caused the news about Jesus to take root in the hearts of people all over the Mediterranean. And it even took root in the heart of the empire itself in the city of Rome. And in those early decades of the church, and pardon my voice, I preached this morning. uh, in, In the early decades and the centuries of the church, there was intense social pressure and overt political persecution against the church. There's stories like under Emperor Nero, how he would burn Christians at the stake to provide light for his garden parties. How Christians would be put into the arena and the Colosseum all throughout North Africa and throughout Rome's empire where they would be fed to wild animals. And the church suffered valiantly. Man, don't throw away church history. The church suffered valiantly. Many died as martyrs. You could read things like Fox's Book of Martyrs. And there's also pressure from within the church. As people who were coming to Jesus who had previously pagan beliefs were trying to syncretize their previous theology with Christianity. And so the church labored uh, to protect the faith that was handed from Jesus to the apostles to them and not to be diluted over time. And so in response to Gnostics and Arians and Pelagians and modalists and all these other heretical teachings that arose within the church, the church decided to gather in these official global church councils where their main goal was to develop creeds, which were succinct statements of faith. This is what it means to be a Christian. It also happened in one of those early councils that they canonized the New Testament where they said, we're going to close. These are the books, the letters, the gospels that comprise the New Testament. The church gave us the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed to defend and define here's what it means to be Christian. Here is the faith that was handed on from the apostles and has been given to us. And not only did the church have to grapple with invading pagan thinking, they also had to come to grips with God's progressive revelation within their own theological heritage. Uh, The first believers were almost universally Jews who had grown up memorizing the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Behold, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But Jesus says that he and the Father are one. And then you have the Holy Spirit descend. And in time, the church begins to understand this mystery kept hidden for ages and generations, the unity and the diversity of God as three persons eternally coexisting in indivisible oneness, the Holy Trinity. So in spite of intense pressure and persecution from within and without, the church that was hunted down and oppressed by the Roman Empire within three centuries became its official religion and ultimately outlasted the empire itself. Over time, the bishop or the overseer of the church in Rome uh, became kind of the leader of the global church. This became the pope. And it happened that in the sixth century... Pope Gregory the Great saw these fair-haired slaves being sold at an auction in Rome. And he asked who they were and was told that they were Engels, like Anglo-Saxon. He was told that they were Engels and equipped that they looked more like angels. And they had been brought from what would become known as England. And Pope Gregory had a heart for the angles, these people, and he sent his assistant, a librarian named Augustine, but not the Augustine that you're thinking of, as a missionary to the angles to introduce them to Roman-style Christianity. 
Augustine goes as a Roman Catholic missionary to reach the Angle people. What Pope Gregory and Augustine didn't know is that long before they had even thought about sending missionaries, there was a Christian presence in England. The gospel had already taken root. And legend has it that Joseph of Arimathea, who loaned his tomb for Jesus to be buried in, was the first missionary to go to England. He probably wasn't. That's just what legend says. In all likelihood, it was probably Roman soldiers or, or business people who had gone and spread the news about Jesus. But we know this, that even before the church adapted the Nicene Creed in 325 AD, there were already Christians worshiping on the island. Uh, we know this because there, there were, the Celtic church had been sending missionaries, like St. Patrick. St. Patrick's Day is all about this great missionary. He went to spread the gospel before Roman Catholicism ever was introduced to England. Now you think, why on earth am I sharing this? This is important because Christianity in England developed its own unique culture because of its geographical separation from Rome and from hundreds of years of organic growth under Celtic missionaries and local autonomous leadership. Celtic Christianity from people like St. Patrick tended to be more egalitarian, uh, having empowered local leadership rather than top-down hierarchical leadership. It tended to be more earthy and less tied to political power as the church in Rome had uh, become. And this English connection to the Roman church was finalized in the 7th century. But it could take up to four years to get correspondence back and forth. And so as a result of this, local kings were given some power over church-related matters. As time goes on, the Roman Catholic presence in England grows and develops. But England always retained its own unique cultural and religious fingerprint. And the fact that we call it England, it's, it's Anglo-Saxon name and not Britain, uh, it's, it's uh, Roman name attests to this. They called it England. Now, to greatly simplify a really long and a complex history, we're launching today. Oh, no, no, I'll, I'll do a little more detail, okay? Yeah, so, so to greatly simplify this history, over the next thousand years, uh, the church in Rome takes on a, a much more central role in governing the global church. And by the, by the time you get to the end of the 1400s, Roman Catholicism had morphed into something very different from the faith that Jesus passed on to the disciples. The Roman Catholic Church over time had infused Aristotelian philosophy into its internal logic, and it neglected its biblical and its Hebrew foundations, leading itself off course. Uh, there's a, a book I'll reference at the end called Our Anglican Heritage, and in this, Howe and Pasco say, salvation was no longer seen as a matter of simply trusting God's love and grace as it was revealed in Jesus Christ. Increasingly, salvation was seen as something humans earned by attending religious services and or giving money to the church. The communion meal had become an elaborate sacrifice offered on an altar by a priest in whose hands the bread and wine were thought to become to be transformed into being the literal body and blood of Christ. The mass, which was the worship gathering, was in Latin, a language which almost nobody, not even the clergy, spoke or understood at the time. And medieval popes claimed political as well as a religious supremacy and financed wars through heavy taxation through the sale of church offices, and even, in a crude sense, uh, the sale of salvation in the form of indulgences. And in that season in the history of the world, popes were among the richest men on earth. 
The message had been distorted. In spite of this corruption, in spite of this mutation, there were many people, many believers throughout the ages who labored to preserve authentic biblical Christianity. In the middle of the 1300s, which is 200 years before Luther nails his 95 theses on the doors to Wittenberg Chapel, there's an Englishman named John Wycliffe who defied the church in Rome and translated major portions of the Bible into English and called for the church to return to true biblical Christianity. After his death, Rome declared him a heretic. They had his bones dug up and thrown into the river, and his works were burned by fire. But his witness of an English appeal to return to Scripture remained and endured, and his, his influence would last for generations to come. Okay, does anybody else remember this, or did my mom make it up? In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. He sailed and sailed and sailed and sailed to find this land for me and you, you and me. Okay, at least mom didn't make up the first half of that. There's some motions too. I homeschooled one year. <laughs> if you want to talk about the rotation and the revolution of the planets, my sister and I can act it out. <laughs> so Columbus hops on a boat, and it changes the world. His expedition unleashed an emotional and existential breakthrough in Europe, which had been through the doldrums of the Black Plague, through the Dark Ages, and there were three powerful forces at work in Europe that resulted in seismic cultural and religious shifts. Uh, the first of these was uh, the Renaissance. Oh, there you go, the Renaissance. Renaissance, Renaissance was a rebirth in learning. It was fueled by new insights as people returned from the East, crusaders, and it resulted in major advancements in math and science and art. You think, why on earth does that matter? Well, all of this educational stirring caused people to reflectively evaluate and question the absolute authority of the church in governing the life of the people, special, especially to question the papacy. Uh, the second factor was a dawning information age. So Gutenberg invents this printing press, and it, it, it transforms how humans interact. It made it far easier to communicate to and to mobilize the masses. You've got pamphlets, tracts, and the scriptures become available in people's own language. And this was what so aided Martin Luther and the Reformers. In an unprecedented way, a historically unprecedented way, people were interested in learning and they were reading and they were seeking out exposure to new ideas. All of this undermined traditional religious authority structures. And then finally, and this feels like totally random, we see the rise of modern nation states. No longer did people want to go through the church to, in, to influence their local political leaders as had been the custom. And local political leaders didn't want interference from the church, especially the Pope. And so we saw the formation of something that we now take as a given, modern nation-states with geographical boundaries governed by non-religious authority structures. And it, and it began to introduce to the world a new and radical concept, the separation of church and state. And these three factors, the Renaissance, the Information Age, the rise of modern nation states, all of which are kicked off by Columbus getting on the boat and realizing that the world is bigger than we originally thought, 
all of these, along with England's own religious history and convictions, independent of the Roman church, influenced King Henry VIII of England to officially break from the Roman Catholic Church and formally establish the Church of England. Now, the details of this separation are really interesting, and I want to recommend a couple of books at the end of this for you to go look at, Uh, especially King Henry and a divorce that he went through, but I can't get into the details of that right now. Suffice it to say this, God used a very imperfect and flawed King Henry, who was in a nefarious and complex situation, to empower and embolden a return to biblical Christianity in England through an appropriate rejection of some of the abuses of Roman Catholicism at the time. So one of the most important and influential things that King Henry VIII did was he appointed this guy named Thomas Cranmer. Isn't he beautiful? (laughs) He appointed this guy named Thomas Cranmer to be made the, the Archbishop of Canterbury. He was regarded as the head of the Church of England. And Cranmer, having experienced Roman Catholic worship gatherings in a language that people didn't understand and couldn't participate in, led by priests who didn't know the Bible, made two major shifts in what would become uh, uh, characteristic of Anglican worship. The first was that he again translated the Bible into English, and they distributed the Bible to all the churches in England. This is picking up the spirit of Wycliffe. And people at the time when this happened went bananas. Uh, People crowded into Anglican churches all day long to hear the scriptures read. And this was a profoundly important and consequential step. The pastoral leadership and the people are reading the Bible in their own language. You remember what it was like when you first started reading the scriptures and you felt like it came alive to you? They were crowding the churches just to hear not a sermon but a reading from the word of God. The second thing that Cranmer did was he developed a guide for worship that was in the language of the people and one in which they would take an active participatory role through common liturgy, meaning everybody participated. And this became known as the Book of Common Prayer. This is, I'm going to read something from the Book of Common Prayer later on. This is the 2019 Anglican Church of North America Book of Common Prayer. There have been others throughout history, different editions. Uh, but he developed this guide for worship. Now, some people think about liturgy as like a stiff or a rote or a religious thing. Um, But it was actually a modern and transformative practice to do some of the things that we're trying to do on a Sunday morning, to develop an imagination of us-ness in the worshiping community, and to put prayers on the lips of the people that would help to transform them into the image of Jesus. James K.A. Smith uh, has this great insight that there's no formation without repetition, Cranmer Cranmer understands the brilliance of that with his liturgy. The vision of the Book of Common Prayer was to give Christians a daily guide for Bible reading and prayer. This was through something that was called a lectionary, maybe a term you've heard before. And also a weekly guide for worship in the liturgy where everybody participated and received Holy Communion. Worship gatherings were no longer watching a show in another language where the priest does everything, and every year, according to Cranmer, was meant to be the year of the Bible. And in a single stroke, Cranmer made the Church of England the greatest Bible-reading church in the world. 
They also became a people who were learning to faithfully pray the Scriptures. And if you were to follow the Book of Common Prayer, and this is true today, if you were to follow their prescription for reading the Bible and praying, every year you would read the New Testament twice, you would read the Old Testament once, and you would pray through the Psalms, all 150 of them, 12 times in a year. That's the entire Psalter once a month. As the Church of England grew and developed and returned to its biblical roots, they strove to wisely preserve the best of all that God had done in the nearly 1,600 years of church history that preceded them. And this included holding on to things like creeds, the sacraments of communion and baptism, and the decisions of some of the, the major global church councils. And there was this Anglican leader named Richard Hooker who argued that nothing was to be rejected merely because it was misused by the medieval Roman church. And so in this way, the Church of England developed a via media, a via media, a middle way. The church was to be built on the foundation of Scripture, but they were also to preserve the best of God's work in the church throughout the ages, including the lessons learned in the Protestant Reformation. And this via media, this middle way sensibility, explains why Anglicanism, if you were to look at it all across the globe, can simultaneously feel very evangelical, emphasizing the authority of Scripture, the desire to see people come to faith in Christ, and at times very Catholic, with an emphasis on the sacraments of communion and baptism, the inclusion of creeds, and it can also feel very Reformed all at the same time. In the 500 years that followed this, Anglicanism has become the third largest uh, global body of Christians in the world, uh, following Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. Anglicanism is especially present in the global south, think South America, and especially Africa. The average Anglican in the world today is a 20-something African woman. Anglicanism is a global church. In fact, we have a friend here tonight. Where's Chris? Chris Royer is right here, uh, who works for Anglican Frontier Missions, helping support Anglican missionaries all over the Middle East and Africa and East Asia. And the example of Richard Hooker's restraint in not throwing out the baby with the bathwater has produced an Anglican sensibility and personality that's characterized by wisdom, patience, gentleness, a generosity of spirit, and a desire to capture the essence of true Catholic Christianity. And it's also given the world some of the best Christian leaders and thinkers, like John Wesley, who was born an Anglican and who died an Anglican and never wanted to see his Methodist movement leave the Church of England. It gave us the abolitionist William Wilberforce, people like Dorothy Sayers, C.S. Lewis, Dennis Rodman, N.T. <laughs> Making sure you're listening. Okay. Water break. Glad to know that reference is still current with some of you. <clears throat> Sayers, Lewis, N.T. Wright, J.I. Packer, John Stott. The global evangelistic and discipleship tool that some of you have probably heard of called the Alpha Course came out of an evangelical Anglican uh, church in the U.K. It's affected millions and millions of people all over the globe. You probably, especially if you've grown up in Tulsa, have not heard a ton about Anglicanism, in part because there aren't a ton of Anglican churches. And I'll talk in a minute about the ACNA. I think there are only two ACNA churches in the city of Tulsa. Uh, but I think it's also because Anglicans are not self-obsessed. They're not brand-obsessed. 
Many of the Anglicans I know are characteristically modest and brilliant. There's one final dynamic of Anglicanism that I want to talk about before I try to shift toward, like, what does this mean for us and the ACNA and C4SO and all of that? And it's the charismatic influence within Anglicanism. So in the early 1960s, there's an American Anglican pastor named Dennis Bennett who attended a Pentecostal uh, prayer meeting where he had this supernatural encounter with God. A lot of people would describe it as being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And his encounter was characterized by this sense of heightened intimacy with Christ, uh, being full of spiritual authority and insight, and this mystical sense that God was just present. Bennett shared about this encounter with the Holy Spirit with some other Anglican clergy that they knew, and they sought it for themselves, and they had a similar experience. It kicks off what becomes known in, in church history as a period of charismatic renewal, uh, where, where traditional folks in the Anglican church and the Roman Catholic church were experiencing this Holy Spirit kind of awakening. Uh, my, my parents and many folks who were at ORU in the late 60s and the 70s saw what this charismatic renewal movement was like as Roman Catholics and Episcopals and all these people from traditional backgrounds were, were bringing the fire into the fireplace and experiencing the best of the Spirit in a tradition. And this charismatic renewal has become a characteristic of the experience of Anglicanism in much of the world. Much of the growth of the Anglican church in the global south has been tied to this charismatic experience of the Holy Spirit. And this charismatic influence in global Anglicanism and in many parts of Anglicanism in the U.S. endures to this day. Now, you guys have been amazing, and I know you stuck with me because you caught the Dennis Rodman line. And so I want to attempt to synthesize some of the history, why I've gone to all the trouble of walking through this uh, to this point, and share in a concise way about some of the dynamics we've discussed in, in a few brief talking points that I hope that you can hold on to. One of the reasons that I feel so peaceful about us joining the Anglican Church in North America is this unique merging of three streams of influence within the church. This is what you could call the evangelical stream which emphasizes the authority of Scripture, the primacy of Scripture, the desire to see people come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, the, the impulse toward mission. We want to see the gospel expand. There's also this liturgical stream with the systematic approach to Scripture, this openness to formational prayer, the insistence on the creeds, the presence of the sacraments. And then you also have this charismatic stream, which, which recognizes an utter dependence on the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. In fact, I shared with somebody last week some of the things that I am hoping for in our church and some of the things that I think we're actively striving for together just plain don't work apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. We can't do it. We need this charismatic stream too, especially within, within the understanding of the fullness of God and the Trinity. We need the, the, the Holy Spirit as part of the Trinity. And I guess as you, as you guys look at each of these, there may be one of those streams of influence where you feel the most at home, and there's probably one that makes you bristle just a little bit. But if you think about it and you consider all of the hands that were raised of people coming from different traditions at the very beginning of this, this three streams approach already characterizes the culture of our church. It's why we have so many former Catholics who feel right at home. It's why we have so many Baptist and Bible church types who feel like they fit. And why we have so many Pentecostal and charismatic types who know that there's a place for them. 
And this via media approach, this middle way approach, makes space for some diversity while also preserving universal Catholic Christian theology. There's comfort, but there's also challenge. There's a generosity of spirit while also being well within the bounds of historic Christian orthodoxy. And as I asked at the very beginning, should it not be the goal of every pastor and every church to embody and to practice Christ's own vision for the church? To hold on to the best of various traditions in as much as they are faithful to our biblical foundations. And this Anglican heritage heritage gives us space for this kind of approach where the three streams can flow together as one river. So we're now approaching uh, the finish line. And I'm looking at my time, and you guys are being amazing. So while you've probably not seen a ton of Anglican churches, especially in Tulsa, you have probably seen or heard of Episcopal churches. If you were to go right onto Lewis and hang a right on 41st, right there at Atlanta, you would see St. John Episcopal Church. Uh, The word Episcopal is tied to the word for bishop, which simply means overseer. And the Episcopal Church historically has been understood to be the Anglican Church in the United States. Now, about 20 years ago, the Episcopal Church in America was as divided and anxious as the United Methodist Church is today, for those of you who pay attention to the news. And there were two chief issues that were dividing the Episcopal Church. Uh, One of them was disagreement about whether Jesus was actually raised from the dead. Now, in my opinion... And in the opinion of historic Christian orthodoxy, one cannot call themselves Christians and disbelieve in the resurrection of Jesus. But that was not the case in the Episcopal Church. The other issue that was going on, and perhaps unsurprisingly to you, had to do with whether the Bible made space to bless same-sex marriages and ordain gay clergy. And this conversation hit a boiling point when the Episcopal Church elected its first openly gay bishop, Gene Robinson, who was married to a man at the time. And feeling that they couldn't stay within the Episcopal Church in good conscience, there was a group that maintained the historic belief in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and a traditional reading of Scripture with regard to human sexuality who broke from the Episcopal Church and began to align with an Anglican bishop in Rwanda, Africa. In Rwandan, and as my friend Chris shared with me this week, Singaporean Anglicans had been sending missionaries to the United States for some time. And this group of Episcopalians that had broken off from the Episcopal Church began submitting to the leadership of these Rwandan African bishops. And it was really a profound tip of power reversal, if you think about it, as American Anglicans sought the oversight of African bishops. So over time, this becomes known as the Anglican Mission in America, and it was led by uh, Bishop Emmanuel Collini. And when Collini ultimately retired, the, um, the Anglican mission in America transitioned to U.S. leadership and became known as the Anglican Church of North America. And the ACNA, as it's called, strives to embody a biblically faithful way of following Jesus. And the ACNA is broken up into what are called dioceses. Those of you who are Roman Catholic are familiar with that language. And a diocese is typically a geographically defined group of churches who are under the leadership of a bishop. There is a diocese that includes the city of Tulsa that's geographically defined. We're not a part of that. We're part of a diocese called Churches for the Sake of Others, which is not geographically defined, but defined by affinity. 
In other words, a group that is of like mind about a particular thing. And the affinity for churches for the sake of others, or C4SO, is church planting. And so it's led by Bishop uh, Todd Hunter. It's a missionary diocese. And the name of our diocese, Churches for the Sake of Others, is inspired by a quote by an Anglican named William Temple, who said, the church is the only institution that exists for the benefit of its non-members. The church is the only institution that exists for the benefit of its non-members. Therefore, churches for the sake of others, for the benefit of others. C4SO is, is how it's abbreviated. As I shared a couple of months ago, is a healthy and it's a growing tribe. Uh, it's growing faster, I think, than any other diocese in ACNA. They affirm the ordination of women in ministry, which is something that's really important to me. They take a loving and traditional stance on LGBTQ issues, like I preached when I talked about this topic last February. If you haven't heard that sermon and you're curious where we land on that, I talked about it for 55 minutes. Uh, you can go back uh, to a sermon called Fountain of Life that I preached in February of last year. Actually, it was just right about a year ago. They have a posture very similar to the one that I'm taking. Unlike the UMC, where the, the role of the bishop is to move pastors from church to church, I am under no risk of being moved to another congregation. Uh, in my previous context, as I shared, the bishop's primary job was to move pastors around. So when that piece is taken out, what does a bishop do? His job is to be a pastor to pastors. And I'm really grateful to have a pastor. Uh, I was with Todd, my bishop, last week, and he pastored me. Uh, he prayed for me. He encouraged me. He challenged me. He is a man that in all sincerity I'm truly honored to serve under. He's a guy, and I'm, I'm trying to arrange a time when Todd and come, can come on a Sunday morning and preach. He's a guy that when he talks, you lean forward because you want to capture every word he has to say. He's a remarkable man. as a dude that knows Jesus. Another thing this means for us is that we're going to support the diocese uh, financially. So if we were a United Methodist Church and launched as a United Methodist Church, about 13% of what you all give to the church would go to support the work of the denomination. Uh, in, in C4SO, it's 5% of our gifts are going to support the diocese, to support church planting efforts. Uh, for those of you who know our finances a bit, and, and you're an incredibly generous church, we're still allocating 5% of all of the money that you give to local and global outreach, and we're still allocating 5% of the money that you give toward future church planting efforts, which if I do my math correctly, I believe that comes to 15%. The 15% of the money that you give, we're allocating toward some kind of outside missional effort. We want to be a generous church. One of the things that makes me feel great about our diocese and Bishop Todd is, is the emphasis on the need for contextuality in mission, in local mission. What this means is that Bishop Todd trusts me and he trusts our church leadership to make contextual decisions about the most effective ways to invite people to follow Jesus in the city of Tulsa. The denomination is not going to butt in and say, hey, you're not doing it that our way. Uh, they trust me. They trust us. Uh, they trust the work of the Holy Spirit. And consequently, some of the ways that we choose to do ministry, some of the ways we're empowered to worship in Tulsa may look different than other Anglican churches or may even look different than other C4SO churches. Like my friend Sean McCain, who is Church of the Resurrection in Austin, uh, Texas. Sean is my age, but he wears like this white alb and a clerical collar. And I saw a video with him and like 
like with incense and worship the other day. And I was like, dang, good for you, Sean. Incense. All right. And there are people like my friend Chris McDaniel, who's at uh, Trinity in Atlanta. Chris preaches in rolled up jeans and chacos and has a full sleeve tattoo. Uh, very different. But the value here is on faithful, contextualized ministry. Inviting people in the wisest way we know how into a life of apprenticing Jesus. So some of you have been in Anglican churches before, maybe a bit surprised that I'm not wearing a clerical collar, a pretty typical thing of Anglican clergy, and we're not jumping in on full-on Book of Common Prayer services just yet. And for me, it's the principle of contextualization. One of the things we've learned in launching Cornerstone, and C4SO has learned this in its recent history, is that launching new churches is one of the most effective ways of inviting new people to follow Jesus, of reaching new people. And they want to help us to do that. Uh, At the very end, I'm going to reference a book by Bishop Todd called Accidental Anglican. I finished the book six months ago, and at the back he said, if you want to help your church launch four new churches in the next 10 years, you should join churches for the sake of others. I liked the ambition. C4SO wants to help us launch more churches. And truthfully, with the, number of, with the number of American churches that are declining or dying, we almost can't plant new churches quickly enough. And so for this reason, Bishop Todd has said he wants C4SO to take on the nature of a movement. Uh, uh, he contrasts what he'd like C4SO to become with what he calls a nanny state. In a nanny state, your every move is policed. You submit reports for everything. Your bosses bosses are anxious and in your grill all the time. And this is just not going to be the C4SO way. And very candidly, and I shared this with with Bishop Todd when I was with him a couple weeks ago, it has been jarring for me to step into a high-trust, low-anxiety tribe. Like I keep expecting someone to come and correct me and tell me that I'm wrong or get on my case for something, but they're not doing it. And this has been refreshing. And in a high-trust environment, we have structure and we have freedom. Uh, We have the space uh, to dream, to learn from others who are further down the road from us, to pick up best practices, to discern how God is leading us to engage in multiplying our mission locally. And I believe with confidence that this transition will add life and not take it away from us. We'll accentuate our ability to pursue our mission rather than add administrative roadblocks. I'm really confident and hopeful and peace-filled about our future. Now, I have been amazing on time so far. I allocated uh, 60 minutes uh, to begin this conversation. I know that there are other topics that you feel passionately about that we maybe didn't get to address tonight. Uh, There are things that we need to talk about in the future. I want to talk more about the sacraments and what it means that when when we gather around the table every week what it means when we baptize a person. I want to spend time talking about that. I want to talk about church membership. Many of you had conversations about other differences about Anglicanism and other Protestant denominations. But I do want to respect your time. I don't want to over-inform in one setting, and I've really covered a lot of ground tonight. So if you want to follow up with specific questions, uh, you can catch up with me afterward. I do want to show you a a further reading list of some stuff that that may be interesting uh, to you. If you wanted to read one book that gave you a broad uh, scope of Anglicanism with a really easy read, uh, I would recommend The Anglican Way by Thomas McKenzie. 
Uh, it's, it's a really, really good book. Uh, I, I mentioned it earlier, but I guess I didn't keep it on here. Our Anglican Heritage by Howe and Pasco is also excellent. But uh, The Anglican Way by McKinsey is just such a simple read, and it covers many things that I haven't had a chance to cover just yet. Uh, another simple read comes from Bishop Todd. Todd came to Jesus in the Jesus People movement of the 60s and the 70s. He was a hippie, long hair, like crazy dude. Uh, he, he went on to be part of the Vineyard Church, which is the charismatic, non-denominational church planting movement. He became the president of the Vineyard Movement. He went on to become the president of the Alpha Course, Alpha USA. And Todd kept experiencing over time that he was drawn to these people and these thinkers who came from an Anglican background, people like John Stott and J.I. Packer and N.T. Wright and C.S. Lewis. And in the book, Accidental Anglican, he tells the story of how he accidentally joined this tribe and his first foray into Anglicanism was as a bishop. So another one of those simple reads that's going to give you some snapshots. It's probably like, like the first, the easiest level reading, and then I would say McKinsey's text after that. Uh, J.I. Packer was the editor of this new catechism that has just come out. I pre-ordered it on uh, Amazon and got it just a couple of weeks ago. A catechism is a question and answer way of learning Christian theology. So in the first centuries of the church, as a person who came from a pagan background would be preparing for baptism. Their preparation for baptism would sometimes take two or three years. And in that time, they would learn Christian theology, and they would do it in this, in this question-and-answer format. In the heart of the word, catechism is the word for echo, where they would ask a question, and the person to be baptized would answer back the, the answer that they learned. If you want to have a great journey, your, your apprentice group do this, could do this. This could be a great individual study. If you wanted to have a great journey through Anglican, but really historic Orthodox Christianity, this to be a Christian catechism is, is really amazing. J.I. Packer wrote a concise theology. He's written some really big ones. Uh, I'm reading this devotionally. Um, the, the, the readings are a page, a page and a half. I'm, doing, I'm trying to do that in the centering prayer every day. So I'd recognize that, I recommend that. And then there's new, this new up-and-comer named C.S. Lewis, who's got a book <laughs> called Mere Christianity, which you may have heard of. And then Wright, another a hero of mine, wrote a book called Simply Christian. Well, I'm tired at the end of all of that. Um, I hope that you've gotten a very, very broad overview of, of the roots of this tribe, that we did not invent it. It did not come, it did not come to exist ahistorically, but it's been rooted in the, in the gift that Jesus has passed on to the apostles, which has been preserved and defended and refined over the years, which has held on to the best of Roman Catholic Christianity in the first centuries, that's learned the lessons of the Protestant Reformation and is holding on to its biblical foundations. Um, there, there are other churches who go through transitions like this, and, and, and you, may be, you may have been in churches which changed denominations, and they went from like A to B, like, like flipping on a switch or flipping off a switch, and it was jarring for the congregation. We're in no hurry here. Uh, we want to learn patiently. We want to learn slowly. There are going to be things that we may incorporate over time. We learn together over time. And I'll just invite your curiosity and your trust uh, that we're going to walk slowly through this. We're going to explain it as we go. We want to preserve our community. We want to move in one body together, and that means going at the pace of community. 
We also want to go and keep in step with the Spirit. And it has been a remarkable journey for me, for Emily, for our board, for our church in the last six months as we've been discerning this like unexpected way that God has led us into our next season as a church. And I will say on the front end, as I begin sharing my conviction, our, Emily and our conviction with, with the board, as, as we begin sharing that with leaders in the church, I met with probably a hundred different leaders in the church the week before we made the announcement. With every step, we were led forth with peace, met with peace. When I shared this conviction with Tom Harrison from Asbury, we were met with blessing. When I met with our district superintendent uh, in the UMC, Cindy, and with our bishop in the UMC, uh, there, was, there was peace. And even as we've moved forward and made the announcement, I shared this morning about 100 additional people have been coming to worship on a Sunday morning on average uh, since the announcement. And there's been a sense of peace and blessing over this as we've tried to go at the pace of the people and tried to keep in step with the Spirit. And that's what we want to do moving forward. Now, some of you may be like, Dang it, he didn't even touch that thing that I was hoping to talk about. Please come to me. I may even respond to some of your registrations if I know you had specific questions that we didn't even flirt with. But I'd love uh, to visit with you. I'm going to close, and we're going to bless the folks who are hanging with our children um, by ending on time. I want to close with this prayer uh, from the Book of Common Prayer. You didn't know it, but we shared a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer this morning when we gathered for worship. And remember, the, the, the thing about liturgy is to put prayers on our lips that we might not think to pray ourselves. When we pray on our own, we pray in our mother tongue, and our mother tongue is selfishness. Bless me, help me, protect me, do for me, throw me a bone. But when we pray a liturgy, it's a guide for learning to pray with the heart of the kingdom. And this is a, a prayer for self-dedication that comes at the end of the Book of Common Prayer. Almighty and eternal God, so draw our hearts to you, so guide our minds, so fill our imaginations, so control our wills, that we may be wholly yours, utterly dedicated to you. And then use us, we pray, as you will, and always to your glory and the welfare of your people, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God, the conversation that we've begun today, we've been having the last couple of months about these steps in our life as a church, I pray that you'll guide us. Make us of one mind and one heart. Not as Anglicans. This is not about denominational loyalty as much as it's about loyalty to the church that is yours, Jesus. Pray that you give us the gift of holy curiosity as as, as we pursue these questions, we'll uh, come to encounter more of your truth and be amazed by the beauty of the work that you're doing in the world. Jesus, I pray that uh, that you'll help us, that you'll unify us, that you'll help clarify what we need to talk more about. And I pray that you'll take away any stumbling block or hindrance to community and to unity of the Spirit in our church. Jesus, I pray a special blessing on all of those college students and friends who are hanging with our children. I pray that for the hearts of our children, uh, you would be at work. To give us the wisdom to know how to raise up our children in the way of Jesus, that the next generation may fear your name. I pray this in your name. Amen. All right. God bless you guys. Thank you for giving up your Sunday night. I'm going to hang up here. Please feel free to come and chat. Otherwise, shoot me an email or we'll see you around. Thanks.